the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 2 this Monday, April 18th. We do so as we do every Monday with Brandon J. Weikert. He is the publisher of The Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. is how he spells his name. He is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, and The Shadow War, which will be coming out a little bit later this year. Brandon, happy Monday. I hope you had a good Easter weekend and all that. I did. Thank you. I hope you you had a nice holiday as well. I did. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You've been uh, tweeting a lot. You're working on a big piece I want to talk to you about. I want to get a sense of Ukraine. i got to ask you first, and sometimes this is just the way Twitter works, is you're not always certain as to what someone is responding to. But why the heck did you tweet, what a shame, Die Another Day has a great opening? Uh, I was talking about uh, James Bond. Yes, let's talk about it. I'm all in. What, <laughs> what, what is the shame here? <laughs> what are you talking well, about? <laughs> well, so I was talking with a friend, another geopolitical nerd like me. Yeah. And he, he was saying that we should they, they should have Pierce Bronson come back in the next Bond as a villain. And I was saying, well, you could actually do that. Because if you remember, in the last Pierce Bronson movie, Die Another Day, uh, he was captured by North Korea. Right, right. Um, and, but, of course, then he gets out, and then the rest of the movie is kind of crap. Pardon my language. Yeah. But that, the opening 12 minutes uh, of that film, when he's captured and then he's tortured, I thought that was one of the most... Int- even the Madonna song that went with it, I thought was all well done. Uh, and I thought that was probably one of the best openings of a Bond movie ever. Was this the one uh, with Halle Berry? The, yeah. Also well done. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, it's too bad the rest of the movie was such ridiculous. <laughs> oh, but, <laughs> you know, I, I was saying to my friend that you actually could do it where, you know, you could say that, you know, the, the 007 James Bond is actually a code name and every different Bond is, you know, part of canon. It's just a different guy serving under that code name there's something you could do but that was sort of an that was sort of a well i i always ask geopolitical strategists what their favorite bond movie was i don't know if that is your favorite bond movie that's not what no, you said no, right God, yeah. no no yeah. no no okay my, my uh you know obviously there's you know it's so hard because the sean connery is the the icon right the classic but i'm a millennial and i grew up on the pierce bronson movie yeah so in, in my opinion, GoldenEye is the gold standard uh, for Bond films. Uh, uh, you know, it, 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 to me, you can't even compare though to the uh, Sean Connery. I don't even conclude those. Well, you can't. You can't. You can compare them because I think after going into a lot of dissuade, the Bond series, the Bond franchise, kind of tried to regain the Sean Connery manliness. Yeah. 
with Pierce Brosnan. I know they this did. a little because I know the guy who wrote GoldenEye, Bruce Feirstein. Really? Yeah, Bruce Feirstein, student of Bill Bennett's at uh, Boston University. Really? And, uh, and uh, he was brought in to do just that. And of course, well, I think they, he did a great job. Yeah, he did another one. I don't remember the other one he did with Pierce Brosnan as well. Was it Tomorrow Never Dies? Um, might have been. I just, I just wouldn't know. You could say so anything, and with the Pierce. audience, if the audience follows me occasionally, I will tweet out pictures of Elliot Carver, who is the yep. mad yep. villain in Tomorrow yep. Never Dies, yep. where he's this, he's this media mogul yep. who's trying to start a war between China and Britain, and it sounds an awful lot like the handful of corporations who rule our our mainstream media. I always say there's an element of truth in that movie to modern times. Sort of a, you know... I think uh, they were trying to make him point. look like Maxwell or Rupert Murdoch, but... Yes, some, I think they were. Someone someone said, it you want to make you want to lay money, the next Bond will have an evil person and it'll be an awfully lot like someone with a South American, excuse me, South African accent who builds yeah. battery cars. Well, you know, and the sad thing is, though, I mean, not only that, but then you also have to think, I'm just waiting for them to do a white supremacist... Yeah. As a villain, you know, you know it's coming. Oh yeah, you know it's coming. That'll be the next one. That's where the culture's going. You betcha. You betcha. By the way, Bruce Feirstein, he wrote a book. You're probably too young to remember. I think almost everyone over fifty might remember. You may know the expression, but it was his book. It was a huge, weird bestseller. It was called "Real Men Don't Eat Quiche." So, oh, yes, so yes, if you want yes, to know I how know to make that. a living as a writer with a BU degree in philosophy with Bill Bennett as your <laughs> thesis advisor, you can write books about quiche and an occasional James Bond movie. Not, not bad <laughs> work for that. That's definitely eclectic. Yeah, no, yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So I just had to straighten that out, um, the Bond yes. thing. Yeah. But, uh, okay, what what do we need to know right now? I'll get to China and the other stuff soon. But what do we need to know right now vis-a-vis what is going on in Russia and Ukraine? CNN's headline, Russia's Donbass assault has begun, Ukraine says. What do we need to know about Russia's Donbass assault? Well, uh, you know, now this is a different phase of the conflict. Um, where, you know, the, the, the fight for Kiev, we talked about this last week, the whole sort of central invasion or the invasion of central Ukraine was sort of bizarre sort of a, a, a bridge too far for Putin, but he gave it the old Soviet try. Um, but now now he's shifted uh, to attacking targets that are much closer to his zone of control in eastern and southern Ukraine. So now, now we're at a new phase of the conflict. The Ukrainians need considerably more uh, support in terms of ammunition and weaponry, uh, the NATO resupply has been there, although nowhere near what it should be to be able to believably uh, prevent uh, the Russian uh, uh, attack on, on the Donbass or, or anywhere else in uh, southern and eastern Ukraine. Um, the biggest problem facing Russia, and, and, and many uh, you know actual former generals have said this, so I'm just repeating what they've said, but they're correct in this case, one of the biggest problems facing uh, Russia has been they're not very good at maneuver warfare. Uh, they're 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 really not they're not massing their forces the way they need to in a strategically viable vital part of the country where they can then sort of lay claim to and then sort of branch out from there. They're sort of spread out along a twelve or thirteen hundred mile front, a thirteen hundred mile front, which is not really. Uh, 
you know, militarily a sound way to go about things. So unless they can start massing over a particular target, uh, they're going to continue to have these problems where they're not able to really achieve much other than killing a bunch of civilians, um, which, you know, is terrible. But strategically, I'm not really sure what it's achieving, because if anything, it's, it's hardening Ukrainian resolve, uh, not weakening it, which is obviously its intended effect to, to weaken Ukrainian resolve, but it is not. Um, and so we'll see where things go. But this is definitely more, I think, in the favor of Russia, because now they're fighting closer to their zone of control. Uh, and it's a different terrain. Um, the fighting over eastern and southern Ukraine, if, Ukra- if the Ukrainian military does really go on the offensive, uh, it's going to be very fundamentally different from what they were doing in defense of Kiev, which was sort of an unconventional uh, urban uh, you know, defensive struggle now that th- this part of the country where the Russians are is more open and flat, more conducive to the Russian heavy armor, heavy infantry tactics. So uh, it's a different kind of fighting. And, and thus far, the Ukrainians are not being equipped in the way they need to be uh, in order to have an, a, a real shot, if you'll pardon the expression, at stopping the Russian advance. Mm-hmm. So this is a whole new new pro- and the sinking of the Moskva, the the Russian flagship over the weekend. Yeah, uh, our it was it was our Neptune anti ship missiles that did it. We gave it to the Ukrainians, and it is unconfirmed. Though I would not be surprised, and you and I have spoken about this before, but it is unconfirmed that that warship was carrying two tactical nuclear warheads. Oh, really? That were about to be deployed in order to flatten Ukraine's resistance because oh, wow. Mr. Putin like the Soviets before him, view tactical nukes not as apocalyptic weapons of mass destruction, but as big artillery pieces. Right. And so we could be facing new escalation. Right. To him, it's no different than us dropping a Moab bomb or something like that. That's right. That's right. Brandon, I have to take a break, but yeah. uh, here's the thought I want to pick up on on the other side. I'm going to just a little bit more on this before we talk a little bit about uh, some other regions and some other thoughts you're working on. The news seems to have ramped up noticeably in the last eight to ten days about U.S. sending more arms to Ukraine. I see the Pentagon is asking U.S. weapon makers to come together and meet on the Ukraine. Of course, there's all the stories about the javelins, which we knew about. The notion was up until 10 days ago that it would be very dangerous for the U.S. to send armaments directly to Ukrainians. Have we gotten over that? Is that Are we at a different stage of thinking now? Is my question making any sense whatsoever? Yeah, no, it <laughs> All right, can we pick up on that on the other side of this? <laughs> yeah. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brandon J. Weikert. I also have a big philosophical question for him about Ukraine, America, and Russia, too. Don't go away. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. It just dawns on me. Lyrics like that don't need no credit card to ride this. There's a whole generation that isn't going to know what that means anymore. Needing a credit card. You need an iPhone to get on a train. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. He is a columnist for the Asia Times, American Greatness. He publishes his own um, on his own website, the Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. I have a question for you from one of our audience, uh, listening audience uh, members, Brandon, who wanted me to ask you yeah. a question. We'll do that in a moment, too. But first, um, there seems to be more conversation or at least more conversation that seems like it's legitimate conversation about arming up, further arming the Ukrainians. It just seems like 
that kind of debate is taking place in Washington in a way that it hadn't about 20 and 30 days ago and prior, where it was seemed as it was deemed um, a provocation for us to directly put give arms outside of the javelins to Ukrainians. Is 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 the conversation serious? Is it good or is it something to be wary and skeptical of? Well, I think it's serious uh, in so far as Washington is capable of seriousness at yeah. this point. Um, I, I, part of me says at this point, it doesn't make any sense why we're not directly at this arming point. Yeah, yeah. At this point, yeah. uh, given everything that we've said and done, I mean, we've called Putin a war criminal. Right. That enta- I mean, at this point, of course, there, there's going to be a response at yeah. some point. Mm-hmm. It's going. The Russians are not just going to keep taking and taking it they're going to lash out at some point and that's the concern and that's why people have said like myself you know we want to support the ukrainians we have to support the ukrainians we have to also be uh uh judicious in mm-hmm. our support and aware that there is uh a, 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 a very large area where this thing could escalate out of control but at this rate given everything we've done and everything we've consistently said and done uh, during the course of this crisis, it probably doesn't make any sense for us to continue to sort of, you know, play these these games where we'll we'll rearm Ukraine through third and fourth parties. Um, I mean, this is where it was it, it, it's headed, really hellfire and it's verbal hellfire and brimstone and physical um, paper paper mache is 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 what yeah. a little more than paper mache. But the the rhetoric has never been matched. The heightened rhetoric has no. never been matched by the willingness yeah. to do something, which has been a complaint of mine because I think yeah I think that sends a certain signal. But, I mean, I ahead. mean, the the issue is, you know, from the beginning, I told you and your audience that I am definitely a hawk, but not a neocon. Right. So I've always favored restraint to some degree, but I'm not in charge. Biden supposedly uh, is, and his team is in charge, and they've been quite hawkish, and at least in their rhetoric. And so the problem is, I don't think the Russians are differentiating between harsh rhetoric and maybe not as harsh action. And so now we might need to think about, well, if we don't start giving the kind of arms and aid to Ukraine that we probably should at this point, uh, then it's going to prolong the conflict. And furthermore, uh, it's probably going to lead to even greater aggression because the Russians are going to think, hey, maybe we still have a shot at taking this thing. Uh, And so now we're at the point probably where we should just commit. Um, and it's, uh, it's not a great position to be in. No, no, but, no. But you if know, you're the Russians and you're listening to your uh, opponents or enemies or strategic combatants calling you a war criminal and, the, right. and then not do anything about it, you're looking at Syria all over again, pretty much. Right, exactly. Which is exactly. a green light. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it's very dangerous for Russia to think that yep. because I don't think the Biden team uh, is, is looking at it as Syria. I think they're very weak. I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there. I mean, obviously, you have a, a dementia-addled man leading us. Uh, but I also think that there are a lot of Russo, uh, you know, Russophobic, uh, uh, you know, ideologues around uh, Mr. Biden who really want to go to war with Russia because they really think that Putin stole the 2016 election from their chosen candidate, Hillary Clinton, which is not the case. But they believe that. I think it's important that people understand a lot of what's going on the last five years with U.S.-Russian relations uh, as it relates to uh, the so-called deep state in Washington, D.C. and in Brussels, uh, that that has all been rooted in this weird assumption by the left 
uh, that that the Russians stole the 2016 election. Yeah. And so this, I mean, what Russia is doing in Ukraine is wrong. It, it is illegal. Uh, we do have a, a, an obligation, and we are justified in supporting Ukraine. But again, I'm very leery of of going to nuclear war or the threat of nuclear Obviously, war for sure. a country like Ukraine. Sure. But but at this rate, we do need to do more than we have because our rhetoric has indicated that we are at the point of no return anyway. So we need to start showing that so that maybe the Russians will back down because right now they're still acting as though they think there's a shot they can win this thing. One of the – I don't know if this is bothersome to you, Brandon. It is to me, and you can tell me either you agree or – Teach me out of it. Get me out of this frame of thought. But when I talk to friends, uh, some some are conservative, some aren't, but but some are, and they talk about you know, well, you know, it's because we've provoked Vladimir Putin and we don't want to further provoke him. I have to tell you, my patience is very short for that argument. My, my yeah. I don't have a lot of patience for the argument that we have provoked Vladimir Putin and we need to be concerned about provoking him further. I just don't. Yeah. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. No, I think at this point, at this point, you're right. Uh, I think that the issue is, and I highly recommend my friend uh, Peter Conradi's book, uh, Who Lost Russia, yeah. which is probably one of the best readable histories of the last 30 years of Russian-American relations. And what exactly happened? We, we did provoke Russia over the last 30 years, but they provoked us as well. I mean, it takes two to tango. And so... Ultimately, what we're watching is the inevitable end result of bad decisions made by a succession of both Russian and American leaders. Uh, some of them were mistakes. Others were just bad decisions, uh, you know, ideological choices. And so ultimately, this is the inevitable end result. Uh, but uh, in the context of what's going on now, uh, no, I don't think it really matters anymore if we provoke Putin because, I mean, we just heard from the one of the generals in Space Force last week saying how Russia's actively disrupting and uh, jamming all GPS signals in Ukraine. A GPS is an American satellite constellation. That in and of itself is a provocation. We, we have this attack on Lviv, which is in western Ukraine, where many NATO members are, are being uh, housed as they're bringing in these weapons and supplies from neighboring Poland. Lviv is the closest city in Ukraine to Polish and mm -hmm. Poland's border. Mm -hmm. And so this is an escalation. And if it's true that the, the Russian warship Moskva was carrying two tactical nuclear warheads, then, my friends, that is the ultimate uh, provocation and escalation. And at that point, you know, all bets are off. And we're still not, thankfully, talking about direct American servicemen and That's women right. being deployed. That's right. You know, there's still a lot of things to be done between really the World War III that we're all afraid of and what we're doing now. Good. And so, hold, hold that thought you know. right there. Hold that thought there, because the question I wanted to float to you from one of our listeners on space may be a good seg segue or at least a good way to clarify that point as well can you hold with us a little bit yeah, further absolutely i'm seth liebson he's brandon j weicker we will be right back welcome back to the seth liebson <coughs> show brandon j weicker is our guest brandon this call this listener uh wrote in an email to you um it, you were born to answer this question 
Uh, Brand, dear Seth, Brandon has mentioned space dominance in the past. Can he comment on space dominance versus space supremacy in light of air dominance yeah. and supremacy? Is yeah. either of these achievable? Would doing something other than regulating Elon Musk into paralysis be helpful? Right. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Right. Yeah, right. so in my book, I talk about this extensively, so I'd highly recommend your reader pick up a copy of Winning Space. Uh, but basically, a, a succinct version, uh, explanation would be um, space superiority is the preferred nomenclature as well as the preferred policy since 2014. Basically, it is based on deterrence, which says it's an eye for an eye. So it's very reactive. It's very defensive in nature. And it says that, you know, if China or Russia or anyone attacks our satellite constellations for any reason, we will attack their satellite constellations in kind until the fighting is stopped, until de-escalation occurs. Um, and it, it basically acknowledges militarization of space has happened, although it attempts to stop the ultimate weaponization of space. In my book and in many articles over the last five years, I have written uh, about how space has already been weaponized via dual-use technologies and that Russia and China both are ahead of us in that way. Uh, and therefore, I advocate for... Uh, a concept that was very popular in the 90s and, and the early 2000s under Clinton and George W. Bush and then was changed under Obama, um, the policy of space dominance, which basically is hegemonic in nature, uh, and it is offensive or compellent as opposed to deterrent and defensive. Uh, and it basically says that we rely disproportionately on satellites and space technology more so than any other country in the world, and that is going to be the way it is for at least the next decade. And therefore, we will not just wait for a rival to target and attack our satellites. We will deploy systems, including weapons systems, into orbit that will both defend our existing constellations and hold hostage the constellations of other countries and also will use space as a strategic domain from where we can launch attacks at the lower terrestrial domains, uh, such as orbital bombardment uh, and things of that nature. We will also deploy, uh, without any permission from anyone, we will deploy space-based missile defenses as well as offensive space-based weapon systems. This is something that Ted Cruz, a senator from Texas, Republican, as you all know, has been a big proponent of over the last five years. He talked about this when he was running for president in 2016. He's maintained his support for it. So basically, space dominance is, as the name suggests, it's very pro-military, very weaponized, very offensive in nature, very, very controversial. Every time I talk to the military about this, uh, most of the people in the room, because of the political correctness, end up crapping bricks. Uh, and uh, a very small fraction of them are quite. So, someone, it, it was, someone is going to want to dominate. China and Russia. Are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I, I mean, so we we can be third in line or first in line. To be clear, line. yeah. To be clear, Seth, even more so than the Russians, China actually uses the term space dominance okay. frequently. Okay. In their native language, uh, Russia is a bit more opaque about it. Um, but but their their actions indicate that they want space dominance as well. But we continuously tie our hand behind our back. My my mentor at uh, the Institute of World Politics, Macmillan Owens, he always said that we are masters of the art of self deterrence. Well, we're very good at psyching ourselves out of taking 
uh, necessary military actions because we assume the enemy will do something we don't like. And so we basically talk ourselves out of even acting in the first place, and then we end up in a very, very bad position, which is where we are in space right now. Uh, Brandon, you mentioned China. Let's talk a little bit about China. You're working on a big yeah. piece uh, with some uh, possible yeah. uh, internal rumblings going on there. But let me yeah. do this. It's a big topic, and we have a break. So let me let me give you a, a rest to your throat, and we'll pick it up on the other side of this break, sure if that's cool with you. Yeah. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brandon Weicker. We will be <laughs> right back. And as we go to break, let me put in a word for our sponsors at Balance of Nature. Their fruits and veggies are what I take every single day 100 percent natural using vine ripened produce third party tested for bacteria pesticides heavy metals the fruits and veggies are gluten-free non-gmo contain no added vitamins or other chemicals it's 100 percent natural to keep you healthy keep you well boost your immunity and even help your body repair itself with 10 servings of fruits and veggies a day how could it not and you only take it once a day with capsules that are easy to open if you don't like swallowing them and sprinkle into food or drink. Take it every day. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. We don't deliberately play Jimmy Buffett music for you because you're in Florida. It just is we have so much Jimmy Buffett music that it just inevitably, Oh, I'm not you know, complaining. Uh, yeah. I'm not complaining. Right. Who would? At all. I had, a, I had a classmate in high school who grew up next to Jimmy Buffett, and he told me that every morning at 9 a.m., uh, Jimmy was on his in his hammock, uh, you know, drinking the... Hitting the sauce and sleeping in yeah, the bed. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The know? booze in the blender that soon will yeah. render that uh, frozen concoction that helps them hang on. I get it. I get it. Brandon <laughs> J. Weikert. Talk to me about what you're uh, noticing going on in China. Uh, one, of, one of the difficulties of, of an open society versus a closed society is they can learn about us by reading the newspapers. We have a harder time learning about them, but with your sources and intel, <laughs> they and may insights, even be able to vote yeah. in our elections. Yeah, Seth. they can even vote in our elections. <laughs> exactly right, Brandon. Exactly right. Um, um, no. So what's going on now is um, Shanghai supposedly is going through a very bad outbreak of COVID nineteen, otherwise known as the Wuhan virus, uh, and uh, Xi Jinping, the president for life of China has a um, zero-COVID policy. He basically uses his military to shut down um, any city or any place in China, uh, to nail people into their homes, leave them to starve to death, to flatten the curve of the COVID pandemic because they cannot allow for one COVID infection to be present in any of these high-density areas lest they infect the whole city, and soon thereafter the whole country, uh, partly because there is no viable vaccine in China and also partly because um, they're just not very good at uh, freedom mm -hmm. in China. Mm -hmm. And so they, they will use the force of the state to basically kill their and to torture their people uh, rather than uh, you know deal with the disease in any other way. Uh, and that has... Uh, worked out for them for the most part for the last two years, except Shanghai is not like other parts of China. Shanghai is considered the New York City of China. It has long been the economic powerhouse that accounts for, which may not sound like a lot, but it is, 3.5% of China's overall gross domestic product. It's about $660 billion 
Their their economy is worth. Uh, China's overall economy is like, I think, what two trillion or a couple trillion dollars. So that's a, that's a fairly sizable part of China's economy. But because of the heritage in Shanghai of being the center of economic liberalization in China since the '80s, they don't take kindly to Beijing locking them down and imposing these harsh COVID measures. And so they're re- re- revolt they're revolting against. Uh, Xi Jinping's rule, these 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 COVID doctrines, um, and Xi, for his part, is trying to blame it on the local communist leaders in Shanghai. He's trying to keep it all local because if if he, if he's to blame, if he's blamed by very powerful elements in Shanghai, then that could be a direct threat to his overall rule uh, over the Chinese political system. And now he's got the added problem because of Shanghai. He's always been challenged by the 95-year-old former Chinese president, the man who ruled China in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, Jiang Zemin, right. who leads what's known as the Shanghai Gang. Uh, he was from Shanghai. He was a powerful party leader in Shanghai. He brought with him into power uh, in, into, into Beijing many, many powerful today uh, leaders from Shanghai who now are running parts of the Chinese Communist Party for the whole country. And so, whereas until recently they've been sort of kept at bay because Xi Jinping has been seen as doing mostly good for the country, with Shanghai collapsing, with it being locked down and now 3% of China's economy being basically turned off, uh, which is really slowing down their, their GDP, which is therefore harming the political legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party, because the legitimacy was based on being able to deliver uh, economic growth consistently to the middle class of China. That's now at risk under Xi with these zero-COVID policies. Now Zhang Jimin and the Shanghai gang are rising again, and they're now starting to build popular consensus against Xi Jinping's rule. Uh, and so it's still very early on. We don't know if it's going to work out uh, on behalf of the Shanghai gang, but we now have a real and serious challenge to Xi Jinping's rule. And so uh, we could be looking at the makings of the end of Xi Jinping's rule, which everybody assumed would last till 2049 at least. Uh, and now we may actually be witnessing internally the end of Xi Jinping, the beginnings of the end of Xi Jinping's rule. We were thinking this in 2020 when COVID first hit, but Xi was able to weather that storm because basically the West, when it got sick, really decimated, was really decimated by the disease. So then Xi Jinping was able to tell his detractors, hey, look, we may be doing bad right now, but look at what America's going through. Look at what Europe and Italy's going through. It's nothing like what we're going through, and it's because of my zero-COVID policy, which may be tough, but darn it, it's keeping us safe, and we're able to reopen before the Americans. Well, now three years later, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. And so now there may be real serious challenge from the Shanghai gang uh, to, to China's leadership under Xi Jinping. And who knows where this leads? This could just lead to a shuffling of, of power. It might go nowhere. It's still early on. Or it could lead to a real collapse of China at a time when all of us were thinking that China was not going to collapse. It's a wild time to be alive, though. I will tell you that much. 
It's interesting because you think about um, the analogs to the succession of Soviet leaders that in the early 80s seemed to turn over. There were about three of them that turned over, Andropov and Chernyenko. Was it Chernyenko? A few others. Yeah. Right. Um, And the Chinese president's chairman, I guess, uh, they tend to last lately about – 10 years, roughly. And we're on the 10-year mark. Xi Jinping is pushing up against... Do they go back to Jiang Zemin? Is he even alive? I don't know. He is alive. So how it works is when uh, you are uh, a president of China, you are surrounded by other notables. Okay. Uh, And it's more like the, the, the board of a big company where you have the CEO, who's the president, and he takes inputs from other very powerful elements, and they advise them, and they lead by consensus of the elite. It's sort of what uh, Klaus Schwab and many of these great reset types want the rest of the world to do. Uh, they're, they're led by these sort of technocratic managerial elite, with the, with the president as usually this sort of quasi-figurehead. But under Xi, he did what Mao did. He's saying, no more uh, inputs. I'm in charge. I'm the big man. I'm going to rule, and I'm going to rule for life. Uh, and now that works when things are going well, because then he can take all the credit. But in, particularly in Asian culture, you know, the saving face mentality. But the reason that leaders after Mao and before Xi didn't want to take total power wasn't because they didn't want it. It's because they knew if anything went wrong, they would be blamed and could get a bullet in the back of the head. Yeah, no, it, so sounds, it sounds a little bit like, uh, by the way, can you stay for some final comments? Yeah. yeah. Sounds a little bit back to the... First thing we were talking about, James Bond, it sounds a little bit like Blofeld in a Spectre meeting, you know? They're all right. just sitting around. Exactly. What was Spectre? Terrorism, revenge, and extortion, I think. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. all right. I'll let you... Um, all the fun stuff. Uh, yeah, all the fun stuff. <laughs> Counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge, and extortion. Yeah. All right, uh, Brandon, uh, we'll be back in just a moment for some concluding thoughts. We'll uh, Don't go away. Brandon J. Weikert, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, author of an upcoming book, The Shadow War, uh, has been our guest. Thanks for spending uh, the hour with us as you do every Monday, Brandon. Uh, really appreciate it. A uh, little news story break in here. Might be a big thing. Never know uh, how these things are going to play out. But uh, uh, Erdogan of Turkey is launching an offensive in Iraq at the same time yeah. he seems to uh, be um, condemning Israel for trying to preserve the Temple Mount. Maybe he should just yeah. pick one. Uh, w- w- yeah. <laughs> Doug, talk yeah. to me about the Iraq thing. Yeah, so this is an ongoing 50-year conflict with the Kurds of northern Iraq. Uh, the, the Turks view them as terrorists, the PKK. Um, and this, they did this earlier. They did this last year. They do this every few years. But my concern now is with the United States sort of pulling out of the Middle East uh, and with Iran on the rise, uh, my concern, and with with Erdogan clearly under pressure at home because his economy is tanking, um, he's he's seeking to restore the Ottoman Empire, which used to rule over that part Mm -hmm. of the world until 1923. And so with himself as a sultan. And so he is going, I think, to use this as a pretext to expand Turkey's military footprint in the Middle East. That means he's going to crush the Kurds. That's very sad. Uh, He's going to crush the Kurds. Now, maybe we can make that work ultimately to our geopolitical advantage 
uh, to court, sort of balance against Iran. But then again, he has a history, Erdogan does, of working with Iran, doing gold for oil. Yeah. So, you know, we don't know what we're getting. And so, so the whole world system is shifting right now, whether it's Russia and Ukraine, whether it's this mess in Pakistan where they've overthrown their leader, and now who knows who's controlling the nukes there, whether it's the collapse of Sri Lanka, whether it's China and the internal power struggle we were talking about before the break, or now whether it's Turkey trying to recreate the Ottoman Empire. All of these moves are happening, and sadly, these are historic-making moves, and sadly, we have in Washington a leadership that is totally unmatched to the, the moment in time. And we're going to lose out on so many historic opportunities. And by the time we come back to it, uh, you know, with proper leadership, we might really be losing our rear ends because of all the missed opportunities of the last few years. Yeah, I get it, Brandon. Gosh darn it. Okay. A normal country in a normal time. Gene Kirkpatrick, Gene Kirkpatrick. once wrote about, yeah, yeah, we need to relook at that because we never really have been, have we? No, no. Bless you, sir. Until next week, unless uh, I have to break the glass and pull the lever and call you again this week. I'm available. I know know. you are. You are so good to us, Brandon, (laughs) as you you teach us every week. No substitute for brains. Brandon Weicker. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Actually, your hour coming up, 602-508-0960. Anything on your mind? That's why we're here. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.